Thank you for downloading this podcast from Grace Church Manchester. To listen to more or to get involved with church life, visit www.gracechurchmanchester.net. Well, keep your Bibles open and uh, we're going to spend some time just looking at this parable and the parable that comes in the middle of this encounter. Um, and this forms a bit of a mini-series that um, Greg will be following up uh, next week as we look at Luke's Gospel and just two encounters on dependence. Dependence on God's forgiveness and dependence on God in mission. So dependence on God's forgiveness today and dependence on God in mission. I'm just going to pray for us as we start. Father, thank you for your grace to us in Jesus Christ. Thank you that this is your word, that you're the living God who speaks to us and encounters with us. And I pray that this morning, that as we spend time in the Bible, as we open ourselves to hearing from you, that your Holy Spirit would do his work in each one of our hearts and minds, wherever we are with you at the moment or not, that, Father, you'd have a word in season for each one of us, and that in some way what I've prepared would help within that, Father. Lord, open our hearts for your glory. Amen. How many people have you had to forgive this week? I mean, really, sincerely, deeply looked at them, felt the pain, wrestled with their actions, their words that hurt you, that inconvenienced you, that cost you something. And in all of that, said to them, I forgive you. Or perhaps you're not at that stage to to face to face with them, but in your heart, you've wrestled and have prayed, Lord, I forgive them. Last October, as part of my work with Ministry to Business, I had the privilege of interviewing the guy on the PowerPoint slide, uh, Robin Oak, who was the former chief constable of the Isle of Man. He had worked here as an assistant uh, chief constable um, in Manchester and was actually um, in charge of policing the Moss Side riots that happened here back in the 80s. Um, a committed Christian um, who served the British police uh, throughout his working career and had a particular um, responsibility within um, counterterrorism. So he was a senior police officer who'd worked with the government and various other um, organisations as well to look at the UK's um, response to counter-terrorism over about three decades. Um, On the 14th of March 2003, Robin received news no parent wants to hear. His son, Stephen, who was age 40, had been murdered. Stephen was a detective constable working here in Manchester, and during an arrest, he was stabbed to death... 13 times um, as he went to arrest a suspected Al-Qaeda suspect. And he actually threw himself on this guy in order to protect his colleagues around him. And this was in the days before stab jackets and stuff like this. It was horrific. Um, You can Google it, you'll be able to see still the press stories around it because it really caught the nation's attention. Now, during the press conference that happened the next day, uh, Robin had come over from the Isle of Man to Manchester to do this press conference, and he stunned the national media that were gathered there. Because there was a question that came out of the blue, he wasn't prepared for it, um, that said, what do you think of your son's killer? 
And Robin says, in that moment, I just shot a quick prayer up to the Lord. Give me the words to say. And his answer sent shockwaves through that press conference because he said, I'm praying for him and I have forgiven him. It was an unexpected and shocking answer. And yet it remains an utterly sincere and powerful answer. He didn't say it lightly. And actually in the interview we teased out what that really meant. How his family responded as well. As C.S. Lewis stated, everyone says forgiveness is is a lovely idea until they have something to forgive. Isn't that true? And perhaps that's why Robin's story, as tragic yet inspiring as it is, still grips people 13 years later. Even as he spoke about the event, he had tears in his eyes. This was still painful. It wasn't an easy gift, forgiveness to give. And particularly as the person he was showing it to has no remorse. I couldn't have, I I asked him after privately, how can you do, he is a guy who needs to get slammed. You know? However, Robin was very clear about one thing, and this can be easily overlooked. And it's the decision he made as a teenager to receive the forgiveness from Jesus Christ when he was 13. And that forgiveness from Christ in Robin's life was the ultimate foundation for that courageous and loving act towards his son's killer some 50 years later. And that's what we're going to look at today. Straight up, I find Jesus' teaching on forgiveness very, very difficult. Not only does he say we all need to be forgiven, he says we need to be forgivers. Quite simply stated in the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our sins as we do what? Forgive those who have sinned against us. And so I hope this morning, as we spend a bit of time in Luke 7, we're really going to wrestle with this simple yet cutting parable that gets us to the heart of forgiveness for us, whether we're hearing it for the first time or the thousandth time. I'm hoping that we'll drive into the wonder of Jesus's forgiveness at work in our lives. So here's a question. How do you know if you're forgiven? And I think in the encounter, we meet a woman who knows forgiveness. Let's have a look at the passage. Luke 7.36, that opening verse, we're told the scene is set. There's a dinner invitation from one of the Pharisees, Simon, to Jesus. Now, earlier in Luke's gospel, in chapter 5, verse 27, Levi, who was a tax collector, has thrown a great banquet, much like this one here in Luke 7. And those feasts, essentially in that culture, meant that uh, people from the whole town were free to join in, a bit like Stephen Heather's open invitation to the barbecue. Come along, everyone. And uh, what would happen is, around the edge of the meal, you'd have people from the town uh, listening to the conversation, maybe getting a few freebies, a bit of handout as, as the food is being passed around. Levi's party was full of so-called sinners, Chapter 5, verse 30, the lowlifes, with the Pharisees on the edge looking on and grumbling. Here, can you see the contrast? Simon's party is with the Pharisees and the religious types. They were the guests of honor, and those on the fringes were kind of the lowlifes. They were the sort of, we're not too sure about you. Now, just 
really briefly, notice Jesus hangs out with everyone. (laughs) He's open to an invite from whoever, the establishment as well as the sinners. He'll go where he's invited. But something happens at the meal, obviously, which would have made a few people choke on their chicken leg. Can you see it in verse 37 38? A woman in the town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his, tears, um, his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with, his hair, with her hair, sorry, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. This is shocking behavior. It's shocking behavior. Here is a woman with a reputation in the city, in the town, for her sin. She was probably a prostitute. We're not told that explicitly. Her behavior at the meal was out of line with the normal conventions of Middle Eastern culture. But in order to understand why she acts like this, let me explain some of the meaning behind her actions. So firstly, her action is lavish. It's costly. This perfume wasn't an ordinary bottle of olive oil or something like that. Um, The mention of the alabaster jar specifically shows this was expensive. It was possibly a family treasure. It was the sort of jar of perfume a woman might use for her wedding in that time. But it was also socially costly, wasn't it? Think about it. She was putting herself in this very public, very vulnerable position. She was showing everyone how she felt about Jesus, the guest. Now, it would be a bit like wearing a Justin Bieber t-shirt to non-school uniform day or dress down Friday. You know, you might think he's a great artist, got some fantastic tunes, but you know, you're going to get some stick from some of your friends for wearing that, yeah? Especially if you're a lad. But why does she let her hair down as well? What's going on there? She could have used her clothes or a shawl or just grabbed the towel off the way. You know, there, there are 101 other options. And in that traditional Middle Eastern society, from the first century, even till now, it was not a good thing to do. It wasn't a wise thing to do. It's provocative. A man could divorce his wife without paying her any financial settlement for having her hair down in in, in public at that time. Um, In that culture, a bride on her wedding night would let down her hair, and this allows her to be seen vulnerably by her husband in all her splendor. Now, this woman isn't hitting on Jesus. This isn't a sexual thing. Although some people at the meal would have expected her to act that way. No, this woman was showing her loyalty, her commitment, her love, her devotion to Jesus. It was costly to her. She would have been mocked by the guests, but what does Jesus do? He doesn't reject her. Secondly, She planned what she was going to do. She deliberately found out, we're told, where Jesus was going that evening, verse 37. And she had taken that perfume with her to anoint him. She she had a game plan. This was deliberate. And thirdly, it's heartfelt. She weeps, not just a few tears, but the Greek used there describes rain showers. It's an emotion. It's an encounter. This really grabs everything of her. So what does this tell us about why she did it? Well, the parable Jesus tells in verses 41 to 42 makes this clear, doesn't it? Her debt had been cancelled, forgiven. She is the person with the big debt in the parable, and we'll come back to it. Um, 
an 11th century Arab scholar. Um, uh, the reason why I'm referring to these guys is one of the most helpful things I've read on this is by a, a scholar called Kenneth Bailey, who spent all of his time in the Middle East, an American Christian scholar working in the University of Beirut and other places, um, looking at Arabic commentaries on the Bible. And um, it just really helps get back into actually some of the riches of the Middle Eastern context in which we receive these um, stories and these encounters. He quotes Ibn al-Tayyib in the 11th century, an Arabic scholar in Baghdad who commented on this. There is no doubt that the woman previously heard the preaching of Christ and was deeply moved by it and believed and repented and was anticipating a chance to make visible her thanks to Christ and to confirm forgiveness of her sins and the salvation of herself. You see, she wasn't trying to buy Jesus' forgiveness. She wasn't doing that. It was a sign of her thanks for forgiveness already received. Where do we get that in the text as well? Verse 47 and 48 actually use the perfect text in the original, uh, perfect tense in the original. Have already been forgiven, as it's translated in the NIV. What Jesus was saying is, her sins have been forgiven, for she has shown it by loving much. Jesus doesn't choose to forgive her because she loves him. Now that challenges the way we tend to forgive people, doesn't it? We're more likely to do it only when they say sorry and really, really mean it. Show me you mean it. I don't know if you, you've seen the film The Mission. I, I recommend you watch it at some point. It's a, it's a great movie. And there's this moving scene in the film where the character Rodrigo Mendoza, who's played by Robert De Niro, a slave trader who comes face to face uh, with the chief elder of the tribe where, which Mendoza has been kidnapping women and children from and obviously selling into slavery. Mendoza made the long and difficult journey with a Jesuit uh, missionary priest, uh, Father Gabriel, who's played by Jeremy Irons in this film. And the difference was Mendoza drags a net filled with armor. It's an absolute huge weight. And apparently in the film, Robert De Niro really did, like method actor, carried this thing around with him. So when you're seeing him stumble and fall and stuff like this and climbing up sort of waterfalls, he was really doing that. And it's quite clear that this huge weight that threatens to kill him at points is his burden. It's his penance. And eventually he drags himself on his knees to the chief elder and a tribesman runs over with a massive knife and holds it to him like this, holds up his hair like this with this knife there and you're expecting him to cut his throat. And Father Gabriel's watching this and he's holding, he's, you know, one of the priests wants to run up and sort of try and intercede but no, he's holding him back. And the chieftain asks Father Gabriel something uh, in their language and then just Father Gabriel replies one word, and then what you see is the rope being cut. And the tribesman pushing this burden into the river. It's gone. And Mendoza just breaks down in tears, crying. And those tears of relief and grief become joy as they all start laughing and celebrating. Now, Mendoza shows he's really sorry. It's a powerful piece of cinema. 
but we don't know if it'll be accepted by the tribe that he's harmed. Was he showing his repentance was genuine? Was he earning the forgiveness of the tribesmen? It's hard to say. It's a bit ambiguous. But here in this encounter with Jesus, the woman couldn't pay him back. Verse 42, what does the parable say? Neither of them had the money to pay him, so she couldn't earn forgiveness. The parable shows her debt of sin could never be paid off by herself. There was nothing she could do to get right with the moneylender, with the king. This woman knew she was a sinner. Someone had to turn someone who had to turn away from her flawed life, her flawed way of living, her rebellious rejection of God. She needed to be healed by Jesus. And notice that Jesus doesn't ignore her sin. He doesn't excuse it. He looks straight at it. Verse 47, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. You see, Jesus doesn't airbrush her wrongdoing. And that's why we can't. God's church can't get rid of the doctrine of sin. Because Jesus didn't. He looked at it. As C.S. Lewis put it superbly, when he said, real forgiveness means looking steadily at the sin without any excuses. After all allowances have been made and seeing it in all its horror, dirt, meanness, and malice. Jesus sees it all. He knows it all. He is the God to whom our sin is directed. It offends him. It angers him. And yet, what does he say to her? Your sins have been forgiven. Before Jesus, our hearts, our attitudes, our motives, our actions, our words are exposed. We're undone. It's painful. And yet, he doesn't reject those who trust him to save them. He doesn't do what anyone else would do, which is go, I'm having none of that. Jesus' forgiveness means he looks at our sin. He knows you. He really does. He looks at the deliberate fault without the excuses that you might bring to the table. And he says, yes, you've done these things. I accept your confession. I will never hold it against you. We're reconciled. And in verse 50, Jesus declares something hugely powerful here, doesn't he? This woman is saved from the punishment of her sin, saved in the big sense. By faith, trusting him, she can live in peace with God. She's no longer an enemy. She's a daughter in God's family. Well, it's a gift of forgiveness we can have today. It's from God. As Jesus said, he's come not for the healthy, but the sick. So like the woman, let's recognize it makes sense to run to him, doesn't it? But we also need to look just at another reaction which helps us know whether we're forgiven. And it's a reaction that comes from Simon here. A hardened heart. Now Simon is an interesting guy because he's curious about Jesus. Was Jesus a prophet? Was he someone to be trusted? Was he a dangerous liar? What is this guy about? He's got a message. He's attracting the crowd. I kind of want to get to know him a bit. 
figure out where he's coming from. And the common opinion among Jesus, uh, among people uh, about Jesus, uh, was summed up in verse 34, just before the encounter, where it says he's a glutton. He, he hangs out with the wrong sort of people. Let's see what comes of that sort of thing. The establishment was cynical. And so, Jesus, um, so Simon has this meal, and we can tell it's a bit of a test. Look at verse 39. He's already thinking. If Jesus were a prophet, he'd know what this woman's like who's touching him. Let's see what Jesus does. Will he pass our soundness righteousness test? And you see, Simon actually goes one step further than just a test. He deliberately insults Jesus. Now, where do we get that in this encounter? Look at verses 44 to 46. It's there in Jesus' rebuke where he lists all the things Simon did not do when Jesus entered his home. Simon doesn't do polite hospitality. There's no washing of hands and feet. There's no greeting. There's no anointing of Jesus. It was a calculated public insult in that culture. Imagine you came to my home. I open the door, grunt at you, walk into my living room, uh, flick on the TV, sit there, and then say, can you go into the kitchen, make yourself a coffee? Put the kettle on, and can you get me one whilst you're at it? It's pretty tough, isn't it? (laughs) You'd be horrified. Simon's doing a similar sort of thing here. His behavior shows he doesn't need Jesus. It's a power play. Jesus would have been entitled to say, you know what, I'm not welcome, I'm off. But he stays. Why? Because he's the king of heaven who took the scorn, the insults. Because there's a bigger thing going on here. He has a message Simon needs to hear of good news. The question is, will Simon hear it? So let's go back to that parable again in verses 41 to 43. Have a look at it. The two people owning debts, and they're massive debts. I sort of calculated them along minimum wage lines. And you're looking at one that's about 28,000 and one that's 2,800 pounds. Okay, that gives you a little bit of scale. Both debtors are shown grace again, aren't they? Their debts are cancelled. It's something they don't deserve. It's just done for them. And it's easy to see who the characters are. You've got Jesus, the one who is the creditor. You've got the woman, we've already seen, the larger debt. And Simon, the person with the smaller debt. But what had Simon lost sight of? Both debtors couldn't pay. They both had a debt. They both needed to be forgiven. But only one of them could see that. You see, Jesus doesn't let Simon off the hook. He forces Simon in verse 44 to understand what's going on here. He makes him look at the woman and uses her and forces him, Simon, to see himself as a debtor, someone who needs forgiveness. You see, this woman exposes Simon's failure and the hardness of his heart through her loving actions. I imagine Simon was probably more annoyed um, that Jesus forgave sins in verse 48 and 49. That would have been the theological point he would have taken away from the whole encounter. Only God can do that. Who is this arrogant liar? And at this point, we might start start thinking, well, I'm I'm not as rude or as arrogant as Simon, and, and we've already started to fall into the trap of being a Simon. By nature, you see, we're all in the same boat as Simon. Instinctively, we think we don't really have much to be forgiven for. 
my achievements, my good work, the fact I'm not as bad as other people that are around, surely that will be enough to get me into God's good books if he exists. Interestingly, Rosaria Champagne Butterfield, that's a lovely name, by the way, isn't it? Um, A former professor of Syracuse University in New York State, who uh, was the head of the sociology and philosophy department there, uh, and headed up the course provocatively called, and it was her title, Queer Theory. She was a lesbian in a very committed relationship and was um, an eminent academic in the university. She actually set out on a piece of research to dismantle the Bible's um, teaching, and particularly Christianity's teaching, on sexuality, marriage, and and stuff around that. And in the process came to faith in Christ. And in her book, The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert, uh, she describes this Simon complex that we suffer with like this. So Rosaria writes, Pride is the root of all sin. Pride puffs one up with a full sense of independence. Proud people always feel they can live independently from God and from other people. Proud people feel entitled to do what they want when they want to. And ultimately, that feeling of entitlement to do what we want on our own terms is sin against God, our loving creator. We're all in debt to him. Now, I appreciate that is a deeply disturbing message. It can sound harsh. It's like an alarm clock buzzer waking us up. And what's more disturbing is that it's really easy to hit off on the alarm button. The really disturbing thing in this encounter is we don't hear about Simon again. We're left not knowing what happens to him. He turns his back on Jesus So please don't do a Simon today. Simon fades away, perhaps lost in his foolish idea that he hasn't got a problem. He loves little because he has no need of forgiveness. Jesus, I don't need you. And at that point, we should feel the sting of the encounter. What about you? What's your response to the offer of forgiveness Jesus gives? Are you resisting that need for Jesus' forgiveness? Why? Is it you need more information? Is it the first time you've heard it? Does it sound too preposterous? Is it that you're not good enough? Surely God can't forgive me. The whole point of this encounter is that he does. He looks at your sin and has done enough to forgive it. So very briefly, finally, how can I be forgiven? You see, forgiveness is costly. It does demand a price. The the novelist Sir Kingsley Amos gave an interview in the Daily Telegraph the last week of his life. He wasn't a Christian, but this is what he said, and it's really honest. One of Christianity's great advantages is that it offers an explanation for sin. I haven't got one, he said. Christianity's got one enormous thing right, original sin. That's pretty mad for a secular writer to say, isn't it? For one of the great benefits of organized religion is that you can be forgiven your sins, which must be a wonderful thing. The journalist then says, um, Kingsley Amos paused for a long time and bowed his head low 
And then he said, I mean, I carry my sins around with me. There is nobody there to forgive them. What terrifying words. There is nobody there to forgive my sin. And yet the whole point of Jesus' mission was to be the forgiver. The cosmic son leaving heaven for earth, his perfect life, lovingly, willingly laid down on the cross, bearing our sin so that we could live in all its fullness. Jesus' costly love drove him as far as the cross and death, taking that punishment from God his Father in our place, taking hell, which we deserved, the justice for our sin so that we don't have to bear that. And you see, we don't get that answer here in Luke 7. You have to go to the end of his account. And in Luke 23, one of the most beautiful passages in the Bible, I love it, you see the cross, and you see two guys crucified next to Jesus, two criminals, who are there, as one criminal says, they're mocking Jesus, they're having a go at him, they're joining in with the crowd, and over that three-hour period, one of them sees something very different that affects his heart because that criminal says, don't you fear God to the person getting executed next to Jesus. We are punished justly for we are getting what our deeds deserve. Can you see that moment of clarity in one of the most darkest places of life? We are getting what we deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. He said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered, truly, I tell you today, you'll be with me in paradise. Can you see that criminal's forgiveness? His life in Jesus' kingdom is achieved not because he's a lovely person, not because he can go off his cross and then show how sincere he was, not because he could repay it with great deeds, but because he depends on the king dying in his place. That is how forgiveness happens in Jesus' kingdom. And understand that this forgiveness changes everything. It's all or nothing. Like the woman, once we accept it, it will transform us. Our unforgiving hearts will be melted. Gratitude will start to flow out. The Holy Spirit will do his work through all our relationships, even the most problematic in our families. It will be a long haul with our colleagues, in our workplaces, with our friends, in our neighborhoods with the incidental encounters at the school gate or Tesco car park or as you're queuing um, for the football match or in your church life groups or on your Facebook posts and on your tweets, it will seep out. There'll be an intentionality to the way you forgive and show that gratitude. The love of a forgiven heart is is powerful in Jesus' hands. It won't come easily, but it will come. And I just finish with this illustration from Corrie ten Boom. She was a Dutch watchmaker. Her family helped Jews escape the Nazi Holocaust. And she was imprisoned in Ravensbrück because of this, a concentration camp where she and her sister were put and her sister died. She saw her sister die. Corrie survived and, and tells the story in the book The Hiding Place. And in one of her diaries, many years after World War II, she records this incident. It was a church service in Munich that I saw him, the former SS man who had stood guard at the shower room in the processing center at Ravensbrück. And suddenly it was all there, the room full of mocking men, the heaps of clothing, Betsy's pain-blanched face. 
He came up to me as the church was emptying. Get that. In church. Came up to me as the church was emptying, beaming and bowing. His hand was thrust out to shake mine. And I, who had preached so often on the need to forgive, kept my hand at my side. Even as the angry, vengeful thoughts boiled through me, I saw the sin of them. Jesus Christ had died for this man. Was I going to ask for more? Lord Jesus, I prayed, forgive me and help me to forgive him. As I took his hand, the most incredible thing happened. From my shoulder and along my arm and through my hand, a current uh, seemed to pass from me to him, while into my heart sprang a love for this stranger that almost overwhelmed me. And so I discovered that is not our forgiveness any more than our goodness that the world's healing hinges, but on Jesus's. When he tells us to love our enemies, he gives along with the command the love itself. Run to Jesus Christ, the God who sees us as we truly are, with our sin in all its meanness and malice, and forgives. To know his forgiveness will change you. And as his children, to forgive others assured of God, that God has forgiven the inexcusable in us is our mission. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for those awesome words. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Your sins are forgiven. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for that gift that is ours today. And wherever we are, particularly for those in the room who are hurting because of serious, deep hurt, where they're still wrestling with forgiveness, and that might be something that will come in a longer time with your love and help. Yet, Father, I pray today we would know we're forgiven people as we come to Christ. Lord, as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, may this simple act be a gift to us of, again, your abounding love. For your glory. Amen. Thank you for downloading this podcast from Grace Church Manchester. To listen to more or to get involved with church life, visit www.gracechurchmanchester.net.